Well, hey there. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson, and I am indeed your gracious and grateful host. I want to thank my good friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, who is the producer on this little show. And God, what a great guy. I'm just going to just going to be his little cheerleader for a second. Actually, no, I'm going to be his uh, Burtis Meredith to his Rocky Balboa right now. Here we go. Come on, Michael. He's just a good dude. He's a great writer. He's uh, He's been writing a lot for industry trade magazines in Hollywood for, God, creative screenwriting and backstage and like variety, which is big, big, big. Hell of a screenwriter. Also, hell of a guy. And I'm done, Michael. I know you're listening to this. That's enough. But I really want to talk about gore. How's that for a segue? And I've kind of talked about this on a previous episode, and I'm going to do it again. I'm going to change it up a little bit. So perhaps if you have already heard this, you can maybe just fast forward and it's kind of the same shtick, honestly. However, gore was incredibly important to me as a kid and kind of still is. is an odd thing to say because, though... When I was a kid, I, there was this magazine called Fangoria, and it was just gore, gore, gore. And my friends and I were always reading it over at Walden Books when we were hiding from our parents because they wouldn't want to see us reading these fucking things. And it's been everywhere I go. I'm like, ah, my more intestines and brains, brains. <laughs> Any zombie movie, I'm completely in. I thought it would be kind of fun to rattle off some of my favorite, specifically gore movies. And those are pretty quick. Day of the Dead. Boom. That's George Romero. It's not even Night of the Living Dead. That's not Day or Dawn of the Dead. That's Day of the Dead. It's like his final triptych. Like his, his oeuvre was finished. Dead Alive. It is a Peter Jackson film way before Lord of the Rings. And it's just over the top. Another one called Bad Taste that he did as well. Goriest thing you can imagine. Evil Dead 2. I mean, come on. Dead by Dawn. <laughs> Dead by Dawn. <laughs> uh, Chopping Mall. 80s film, get it, not shopping, but Chopping Mall, very gory, Reanimator, and From Beyond. I'm putting them together because it's both got Jeffrey Combs in it. He's an indie uh, hero, uh, horror hero. We got uh, Sleepaway Camp. I mean, that's like an old school slasher film from the 80s. Piranha 3D, which came out about 10 years ago and is surprisingly good and is actually surprisingly really gory. But all these gory films that I like so much, they're just so over the top that they're just inherently comedic. Evil Dead 2 is a classic example of that. Um, Excuse me, Dead Alive, certainly. Day of the Dead, all these films. Return to the Living Dead is another great one. A punk rock version of a zombie film when it was unbelievable. So, And the final one, I guess, honestly, is Hellraiser. Because, you know, it's Hellraiser. Why am I bringing all this weird stuff up is because I got a chance to interview this next guy. His name is Jeffrey Reddick, and he's kind of he's known. His thing is that he created the Final Destination whole franchise, the whole thing. He wrote the first one, and then that continued to two and three, and I think they're up to like 95 now or something. And But we didn't just do that. He's just an incredible guy. We talked about this movie that he did called Don't Look Back, which is based on the story of this woman named Kitty Genovese back in the 60s, who in New York, she was stabbed to death outside of a uh, an apartment complex. And no one did anything, but they saw it. So that's what came, uh, came known as the bystander effect. And now uh, here we are. And it was really great. We talked about about uh, representation uh, for him as an African American gay man, and how that can feed into and uh, how representation can can show a different side. 
And finally, this is, this is my favorite. We got into this crazy show called V. And V was this TV movie in 1983. It was like really a big deal when it was coming out. I think everybody watched it. And it was about these uh, these kind space aliens who come down suddenly and do a kind invasion. And they land and they're like, we will help you, humans. And then at one point, the big reveal is that they take their latex face masks off and they reveal they're lizard people. <laughs> Dumbest gag ever. But entirely enjoyable. And speaking of which, as I always say, I hope that you enjoy this podcast as much as I did making it. Because I had a hoot. I think I'm going to go watch some uh, some old school uh, Hellraiser. I think I'm going to do that. Open the box. <laughs> Man, I am cracked out. Hope you're all doing well tonight, folks. If it's uh, morning, day, 3 a.m., whatever you are, take care. Hello, everybody, Inspired Minds podcast listeners. Please say hello to the fabulous and talented Mr. Jeffrey Reddick. Say hello, Jeffrey Reddick. Hello, Jeffrey Reddick. Hey, hey, you did the old joke. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm old school. I'm old school. For the record, by the way, I've done about 40 of these interviews. No one's done that before. Good work. Oh, awesome. Then I don't feel so cliche. <laughs> you're, you're an originator, believe me. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. And the way I like to start these things is I start with the same question every time. And it is the following. It is, when you were younger, what was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you when you were a kid that lit you up? Was it a song or a book or a person? Movie, what do you got? Oh, my gosh. Um, I think the first thing I can remember that inspired me was uh, was uh, Wonder Woman. That's the first thing that pops into my head. I, yeah, I don't, that's just because I'm trying not to overthink it, and I'm just thinking back. And, yeah, I just remember seeing Wonder Woman and thinking, wow, she's awesome. It had to be more than just she's awesome. Why was she awesome? Was it her? She was beautiful and she was strong and she just like could do all these cool things. Yeah. yeah I think it was Wonder Woman. Yeah. And a super gay icon too. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, I figured all that stuff out later, but um, <laughs> I, I knew, I knew when, um, when I was young, yeah, like she, yeah, there's just. That's, that's kind of like, by the way, I just thought about this. But when every kid my age back in like 13, when we were all in the like Judas Priest, we're like, wait, he's gay? But then it was kind of obvious later in life. <laughs> <laughs> Even Rob Halford was like, I was wearing like leather. What the fuck did you think? You know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty funny. Like, um, yeah, that's, I think that's, that's just pop. Nobody's ever asked me that. So that, that is just the first thing that popped into my head. No one hears that question. And uh, so here's the next the second part of the question actually is, if you can, could you draw a through line to your life with that Wonder Woman experience? Did that, in other words, did that animate you enough to do what you are doing, let's say, whatever that means? Well, I think it did in several ways. I mean, it d definitely sparked my interest in film and TV. You know, I, I've always known I wanted to work in the entertainment industry um, I, you know, wanted to be an actor when I was, you know, starting off. Uh, so that's kind of a bug that never goes away. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up in Eastern Kentucky, so, you know, TV and, and movies were like a big part of my kind of entertainment when I wasn't like doing farm work or in school. Um, so yeah, I think that that really did inspire me to want to get into the entertainment industry. Um, I think it also inspired my, um, 
you know, I, I think, you know, I've always written very strong female characters. Like I've, you know, always had a great admiration, you know, for women and all the kind of struggles that they go through. Um, I think that affinity to, to strong women is something that for some weird reason, like all gay men have, like, I don't under, like I've, I've never understood growing up. It's just, I, I, I think part of it's that you, I, well, part of it is it's not that you want to be a woman, but those women always got the the guy at the end <laughs> um, and the guys always, you know what I'm saying? So, so I think there's a subtextual thing there where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, the, you know, the only, uh, the only reason you, you say you would want to be that is because, you know, you always ended up with the, with the, with the strapping um, hero at the end of the, at the end of the show or at the end of the movie. I think that's part of it. So um, yeah, I think it, it did kind of influence just again, especially my career trajectory, writing strong female characters. um, And uh, you know, certainly, you know, social justice has been kind of a, you know, that's part of my kind of faith as well, but also, part of just my kind of ingrained belief system beyond faith. And so I think Wonder Woman obviously standing up for, for truth and justice is something that's always been a part of who I am. Incredible. And I, this is why I love asking this question to every single creative that I know. Oh, and by the way, the last question is going to be something similar, but you'll see in a, you'll see in a bit, but I love that question because it creates that arrow. It creates that through line. It creates that narrative that is completely important to me for myself and also as a burgeoning therapist because I try and find my clients through line. And creatives tend to have that, that fortune to have that moment of, oh my God, this is it. Like for me, it was when I heard Boston's more than a feeling. <laughs> it was like, like five and I was like, I want to be a musician. So Yeah. Oh, that's it, really fast. Yeah. No, that's actually... I never thought about that. So um, that's really great. Yeah. It's funny because I'm kind of in a place right now where I'm trying to think of of what I want to work on next. And, um, you know, I'm so caught up in what's going on in the world right now that it's stressful noise and kind of negative stuff that um, this actually gave me something to think about in a more positive way. So that's, that's cool. Wow. No, keep going. It's a fun question, right? It's a fun question because, look, and I'm going a little off topic here. Perhaps, well, my fucking show, I can do whatever I want. So, God damn it! But you know, it. But it is that through line. It is that inspired mind thing. It's the reason why the show is named what it is, right? Because yeah. people can find inspirations. And here's here's the next here's the next thing I don't want to go into. I guess is that, and this is really what the show is ultimately about: storytelling. And I personally believe that the shortest distance between two people is a story. Okay. I heard that somewhere else on another podcast that I did, but regardless and storytelling, the oral tradition specifically is my jam because it's been, you know, stories about, you know, Peloponnesian war were handed down and famine and blah, 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 blah for millennia. And I think that's amazing. But what I think is incredible also as a, as a writer, and I want you to comment on this is that when you write a story, it's got a beginning and a middle and an end, obviously. Right. You got to tie it up somehow. And in that tying it up, you get a theme out of it. No matter how banal the movie may be or the, or the work of art may be, you got to finish it. So does that, how does that, does that idea play into any of your writing at all? Um, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm very concept. I know a lot of creative people, especially writers will start with a character 
um, or a story, but I'm very concept, I think, in my head, just the way I formulate thought. So I think maybe the concept is the theme of my my work, uh, like Final Destination, the idea that you can't cheat death. You know, in, in Tamara, the the theme was the consequences of bullying. And, you know, my movie I directed, Don't Look Back, it was... Hold on to know, that. Con- I want to get there and Good Samaritan in a second, because I, I, I really want to talk about that bystander thing. Is super important to me because I'll get to that in a second. But what I find also interesting is, and again, this is that thematic thing. First of all, you worked on a fucking farm. You, were- <laughs> really? oh yeah, 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 yeah. We had a far- like a full, full farm animals garden. You know, like um, huge garden, um, huge tobacco cool. field. Uh, yeah, full on, full on country boy. So how did a country boy who, as we previously discussed, are four people of color, apparently, in eastern Tech, Kentucky, and as I would imagine, a uh, young or uh, soon to be gay man, and how does that guy get to Hollywood? And I know that there's that script, I, I will tell the story, and you can expand on it, that when you were you know, like 17, I think, or even, no, 14, I think. 14, yeah. Right. You sent a, right. You wrote, presumptively, wrote a script, a prequel to Nightmare on Elm Street, which I would, that sounds amazing, by the way, in general. But you sent it over to Bob Shea, and then he's like, who the hell is this? And then you like wrote some rude email or something. Tell me about that. It wasn't rude. Um, <laughs> no, it was funny because, um, you know, a little context. Yeah. Like I, I, I always knew that I was going to work in movies. Like that was just, Something that was, you know, I remember my, one of my neighbors told me that she asked me when I was like 10 years old, what I was going to do when I grew up. And I said, I'm going to be a movie star. Um, so I always knew that I was going to work in entertainment. Like, I, I just feel like it was kind of my destiny mm-hmm. um, in a way. Uh, and yeah, when I, I got into horror films and, you know, growing up where I did again, you know, my mom was white. So we moved back there to take care of her grandparents um, who were older um, and yeah, there, there were no people of color from grade zero to through college Wow, in the area. And they had never seen, you know, the, the good thing is like, cause we, you know, we experienced like, you know, like really heavy racism as far as you, you would think it was like the fifties, mm-hmm. you know, stereotypical fifties. But the thing that my mom ingrained in me from an early age is she's like, you know, these aren't bad people. She said, they've just never seen anybody like you and so the only reference they have is from all the stereotypes and all the negative stuff they've heard like they've never seen anybody like you so they're not bad people at their core they're just ignorant in that they don't know anything else so that helped me really process um and not hold on to a lot of the anger that i think i probably would have had if my mom wasn't wise enough to explain that to me at a young age um and I think that's something we kind of forget in our modern times, because this wasn't long ago. <laughs> um, like, you know, you know, two years before I was born was when interracial marriage was finally, you know, legalized across all the United States. So, you know, the not so distant past isn't as far as we like to think it is. Um, so, you know, I, I was, a you know, spent a lot of time, you know, by, with my friends watching movies and reading comics, but es- escapism was very was very important to me. I I love where I came from, and I hold on to a lot of those values and work ethic. But um, yeah, I wrote a prequel story for A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is my favorite movie, and um, 
called information and got the number for New Line Cinema and the address and and mailed it to Bob Shea and he sent it back and said, you know, we don't take unsolicited material. Um, and I joke, I didn't know what that meant. So I had to look it up. <laughs> um, I wrote him back and I sent it again and I'm like, look, look, sir, I've spent $3 on your movie. So I think you can take five minutes. <laughs> so that wasn't rude. That was just being factual. Um, <laughs> and, and he read it and he got back to me and his assistant joy man, who, um, is no longer with us, but a woman who I adore and give her as much credit for my career as Bob. Um, but they stayed in touch with me and they would send me scripts and the, and, you know, just that encouragement. Yeah. Um, and that idea that the dream wasn't impossible. Um, yeah. I carried that through college. I went to Berea college in Kentucky, which is an amazing, um, university. It was actually the first, um, integrated and also co-ed college in the, in, in the South. And so I went there and I studied theater. And when I was a sophomore, I finagled, a. Uh, I got it accepted into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts for their summer program and finagled a trip to L- to New York. And then when I got to New York, I got a new, you know, New Line offered me an internship and I got very fo- lucky and got an agent that summer. Wow. And I was like, screw, screw that. I, who needs, <laughs> who needs school? I'm going to make it, you know, overnight. And so I stayed in New York and then, you know, the reality of the business is cut to 10 years later, 10 years to the day I graduated high school is when I sold Final Destination. So <laughs> it's, um, it's a, it's a long journey, but, um, you know, it's got a lot of cold, you know, there's a, there was obviously tenacity on my part, um, luck on the part that Bob Shea got back to me. I mean, I, I would have gone, I would have gone some, I would have still gotten to New York or Los Angeles one way or the other, but I think my journey would have been a lot different if, you know, if I hadn't got, Uh, you know, Bob Shea at that time. A a thousand percent. And now here's the next question I got for you. What did you learn from that experience? You know, it's funny. um, When you're young, you don't process things like, you know, I didn't have any master plan in my brain. Like I just thought, oh my God, he wrote me back. And he said I had a good imagination and he did tell me I needed to, to learn more about the craft. And so I started reading I would ask them to send me scripts. Um, so at the, it's a couple of things I've, I've learned in hindsight. I, I, I've learned that, that old saying, like, I wish I, you know, knew now what I knew or knew then what I know now when I was younger, you know, it's yeah. like that kind of willingness to like that belief in yourself. That's not kind of, um, that's just pure the art art artistry that's in yourself that's just coming from a very pure place like i wasn't i wasn't thinking i want to i'm going to write this prequel and become a millionaire i was thinking like i love this movie and i've got a great idea for it so it was like 100% coming from a place of creative passion and when you're younger you're you know to, both a pro and a con is that you're um you don't have that fear <laughs> factor yeah. in you you think you're invincible um and you just go for stuff. And, um, I learned as we get older now, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to like rekindle that kind of fearless, like not even spirit, but also that passion rekindle that just unfettered passion that I had, you know? Well, I was just going to give you a therapist freebie here. I would, I would really start focusing back on wonder woman if I were you. Yeah, no, that's actually, yeah, no, I, after you talked about that, I a hundred percent like, that's what I was like. 
yep, I'm focusing on Wonder Woman. Yeah, so. right, because she represents strength to you. She represents equality to you. She represents justice to you. And she represents minorities to you, I'll bet. Yeah, absolutely. You owe me 150 bucks now for a session. Moving on. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, just wait. Oh, we'll be up oh. 1000 when this thing's over in 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I got another. So here we go. So I really do want to talk. So first of all, it's it, it's Tamara, right? Not Tamara? Uh, Tamara. Oh, it is Tamara. Uh, well, it is Tamara, yeah. But but people have, I think even in the movie, they say it differently. So, um, yeah. Okay, so, but here's what I, Day of the Dead, the George Romero, I'm a giant George Romero fan and horror. But what I really do want to talk about is this Good Samaritan, Don't Look Back thing that, that your film that you had done, I, as I understand it, and it, I've watched, uh, you know, the Good Samaritan stuff and the Don't Look Back. And I think the Good Samaritan is like a earlier version, essentially, of the long one, which you can talk about. but. It reminded me of the the Kitty, Gen, uh, Kitty Genovese story. In oh yeah, in, that's a hundred percent the inspiration. I, I knew it the second I saw it. I was like, "That's Kitty." And I didn't the name up, but I I remember the story, and that was it, right? Yeah, yeah. That that story. I I and it's very it's the fascinating thing is like that story had always stuck with me, um, so hard. Um, as far as like, you know, how could these people do this? And it just it it stuck with me you know, study the bystander effect. But the fascinating thing is when I was, um, I did the short first to show that I could direct horror, but the the only difference is the short is straight up a horror version. I took one of the characters from the movie and r- wrote a horror short around him. And the movie is more of a like mystery thriller. But when I was flying uh, to Baton Rouge to shoot the film, there was a documentary on Kitty Genovese on the plane and it was actually deconstructing the myth that we'd been told because apparently people had done a lot more. It wasn't as cut it and dry as they had made it out to be. Like a reporter basically was, you know, kind of desperate to like pop it as a newspaper and went down there and interviewed people and figured out the angle on the story to make it sound like nobody did anything. Um, and that became kind of the the story that went around the world. But this documentary actually went in and talked to a lot of people and it was very, it was just, I was surprised when I was flying down there that, that I'm like, Oh shit, this is on the plane. <laughs> like I can't exactly. believe it. It's called um, a synchronicity. If you're a Jungian fan, Carl Jung. Yes. But uh, in what the fifties, I think it was, there was a woman named uh, Kitty Genovese, I think her name. And she was stabbed and murdered and in his apartment complex outside. And there were all these people who kind of looked at it and went, ah, not my thing. And no one called the police and, but apparently that's not quite the truth, but I wanted to give some context. Yeah. Yeah. But the, 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 the myth, the kind of story that went around was like, you know, 30 or 29 people or something like in the apartment buildings, like heard her cr- crying out for help. And just nobody called the police. Nobody went to help. And people just kind of shut their windows. And that became like the story that went around the nation. And it was, you know, just a very horrible, shocking story. So amazing, by the way, that you really on that plane. I mean, that's, Pretty well. Yeah. I know it was. Yeah, it yeah. was pretty. Oh, and speaking of planes, this is the greatest segue I've ever done in my entire life. I want to talk about Final Destination for a second. Um, yeah, that was good, right? Yeah, that was. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Proud of myself. Um, I just got so. First of all, I'm a giant gore fan. Do you remember Fangoria? You must. Oh, of course. Yeah, like I used to get when I was a kid. Like my mom would, you know, my mom would be like. 
I don't know how, how you look at that stuff, but because I was staying out of trouble, she let me she let me watch the movies and she let me read the Fangoria. So oh my yeah. God. every time I would go to a bookstore, I was like it's like ten. The first thing I would do is I'd be like, I'd walk and buy all the books, like, ah, pinch and fuck him. Arthur Heller done. Like I don't give a shit. I would go to the Fangoria and just like read it like nonstop. Oh God, yeah. I'm I'm yeah. It's it's still be. like the 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 premier magazine for every horror fan that's my age and still younger and older. <laughs> like that in Starlog. Starlog was the science fiction yeah. dorks. Thing. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're me. Um, but, but so there's a great line that you had that I saw. It was something along the lines of, I love finding different ways to kill people. Yeah. And um, in context, um, so <laughs> for films, um, yeah, because it's for for me, it's like horror is entertainment. Um, it, it's, you know, therapeutic in a way, but it's also, it's, it, it, I want it to be entertaining at the end of the day. And, it, you know, as somebody who's seen so many horror films, it's really hard to think of original ways to, to kill people in films. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's always, it's always like a, a fun challenge to try to come up with either a spin on something you've seen or, or, or play something out in a new way. Cause it's, I abhor real life violence. Like real life violence, I can't is is awful. But um, in the in my inspired mind, I like to think of creative ways to um, to kill people. Nice plug for my own show. Thanks. I know. See what I did there? Pretty good. <laughs> Wait a minute. I told this story before. I got to make this quick, but I've told this story before. But if you're a sci fi guy or at least a pop culture fan, you might know uh, a guy is a science fiction writer named uh, Harlan Ellison. Does that ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Uh yes, absolutely. Okay. Time out. God, I'm gonna waste my I'm gonna burn some time on this one, unfortunately, but it's about me now, apparently. So <laughs> I was at I've told the story before also to like some other sci-fi nerd on a podcast. I was uh, he had a show called Babylon Five, like in the nineties, and it was oh, like yeah. right, it was his thing, right? He was, yeah. he was the EP on it. So my girlfriend <laughs> can't believe the story. So my girlfriend at the time was a costume designer on the show. So she brought me over to the rap party. And I'm talking to some guy and I'm smoking, right? And the and guy's like, tells me the story about how he quit smoking. And as he's telling it, people were kind of coming around and it was an amazing story. And I had no idea who this guy was. I'm sure you can figure out who it was. And as he tells the story and he ends it and I say, wow, you should, you should really be a writer. And I was <laughs> totally serious. Okay. And to his credit, he actually said, that might not be a bad idea. And I walked away. And my girlfriend was like, what did you just do? <laughs> that's my, that's my story, but it's not about me anymore. He probably appreciated it. I don't know. He wasn't the nicest guy in the world. Apparently. <laughs> oh, okay. He probably didn't. He's like, that's, that's probably why he was an ass. He's like, that guy didn't know who I was. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Okay. So let's get to the metaphysical. Let's get to the, uh, the, the higher uh, consciousness uh, questions. So, why horror? You kind of mentioned a second ago it was therapeutic, but pull on that thread, will you? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, I've, you know, I've thought about it for obviously like, you know, I, I know originally I was kind of drawn to horror because there was kind of a, you know, everybody else was afraid of it. They're like, how can you watch that stuff? And aren't you scared? You know what I mean? So it was kind of a rebellious yeah. thing. Um, I think in Nightmare on Elm Street's the first movie I saw where I really started dissecting like the themes of horror films and, and, and how, you know, the deeper meanings that they can have, have to them. 
Um, but there, there was something very cathartic. And I've, again, I've noticed this among most of my peers in the genre, like writers, directors, actors, everybody that loves a genre, you know, they, I think everybody feels like an outcast or a misfit, misfit in school, even the popular kids, you talk to them years later and they're like, well, I know I was really popular, but I was also dealing with all this, you know, internal stuff that I, we never talked about, but, um, you know, the thing about most of the horror films, especially that came out, you know, um, in the in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, you always had people dealing with dark stuff and usually they they triumphed at the end. So that really, I think, resonated with me with kind of the stuff that I was dealing with, you know, in my life, the racism and kind of the homophobia that I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also kind of a common thread of everyday people, especially in the teen horror genres you know, the, the final girls were always, you know, kind of the mousy kind of quiet, you know, people liked them, but they didn't really stand out. They weren't the prom queen or they weren't the, you know, the cheer head cheerleader or they, you know, they weren't the most popular person at school and they were the ones that kind of rose up to be the heroes at the end. So I think that there was something that kind of connected with that. And then you kind of got to see the, the bullies and the popular kids, kind of get their comeuppance. Um, so I think that there was, you know, there was definitely a layer of that, you know, not in, you know, not in a way that ever makes you want to like, be like, Oh, I want to go out and kill the bullies at my school. But in a, in a way you got to kind of release a lot of that negative stuff that you could hold on to because you could see it. Yeah. You that's know, an you're going to see the revenge of the nerds happening on screen. <laughs> but with blood. But with blood. But with blood. Wait a minute. Okay, I have an idea right now. You and I are going to write a script. I'm saying it on this podcast right now. And it's going to be a remake of Revenge of the Nerds, but it's going to be a bloody bloodbath. Deal? <laughs> bloody bud, bloody bloodbath. Bloody blood, I don't know what that means. But yeah, it'll be a bloodbath. That's what I'm talking about. Chainsaws. Yes. You know, the whole deal. You know this. this is your thing. <laughs> but that does tap into that thing that you're talking about. I love that idea. You're right. Here's another one that I really want to talk to you about. Uh, that is, so I, you had this great line in, in some interview I saw, where you were talking about, uh, you know, this concept of when you were acting and, you know, perhaps still are, but when you get into these situations, sometimes you're like, eh, you're not a rapper. You're not a basketball player. We don't know what to do with you. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah. And that, that I, I was talking about that in the context of, of where the business has, has come from, how far the business has come. Because when I first started off in the nineties, you know, literally you know, my agent was like, you're a great actor, but she's like, you don't, they don't write roles for, cause you know, I'm very boy next door ish. And she's like, you know, you're like an ethnic Michael J. Fox. Like you're an, you, you know, you're a funny boy next door, but they don't write roles for people like that, you know, for people of color. So if you rapped or play basketball, like I could, I could put you up for a lot of stuff, but you don't do that. And, you know, there's a, you know, we're, we're at a different place now with diversity and representation in films and, you know, there's such a pushback against it because anytime, anytime there's something that's been a normal forever, when there's something different, all of a sudden it, it shakes people for some reason. So, you know, I try to explain to people, like, you have to understand, like, when I started off in the business, they always said, you know, well, we picked the best talent for the role, but that wasn't true. They, they picked the best white talent for the role. Um, and they just wouldn't look at other talent. Like, I, you know, I worked at a studio for 10 years and, you know, we'd have amazing, black actors and actresses come in for roles. Now I will say new line was probably 
way ahead of its time in in doing films like Blade and House Party and Friday. Like they actually were the exception, I think, at the you know at the time where they would do movies with with you know black and 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 other you know people of color in the leads for specific marketplaces because they knew they were underserved. But for mainstream movies, they would either be like, well, America's not ready for a black lead or they're not going to set, you know, black people don't have this international value to, to, to make our money back. So they just never looked at any pool of talent outside of the pool of really well-known white actors and actresses. Um, And so what we've seen now is it's, you know, you know, it's, it's still about the quality of the work that's what matters the most. But what, what we're seeing now is people are like, Oh, there's a whole pool of talent over here that we've just automatically discarded for consideration for roles. And now we're going to look at that pool of talent as well and pull people from that pool. So it's, it's really shining a light on an underrepresented group of people who are just as talented, but again, have never been given the shot to, to play certain types of roles. Um, So we've come a long way and again, that's great. It's just, it's funny because there is a backlash. Like I, j- of course, I always pick the one negative thing that like still like will stick with me. But, you know, I just did a, a super short thing for entertainment partners about, you know, diversity and how much times have changed. And of course, I get like one response. It's like, oh, this is typical woke, you know, liberal, you know, bullshit. And it's not about quality. You got you. You're just wanting, you know, affirmative action, equity. And it's like that. I didn't say any of that. <laughs> like you're projecting so much of your own thing. But like, again, going back to what my mom, how my mom told me to view the world is like, you know, I, I, I do understand like, it's, it's weird when you've grown up in a society where, where again, straight white people are kind of the standard bearers of, of beauty and have been the standard bearers of entertainment as leading men and women forever. It's a shock to this system to see that change um, and it can be seen as a threat, especially if you feel like, you know, as human beings, we're always, you know, we don't seem to think there's enough pie to go around. So we always tend to think if someone else is getting an opportunity that it's taking something from us, you know, that's kind of the the very big difference between something like affirmative action, which is like, if you have two equally talented people up for a job, but your company is 95% white people, tilt the, you know, give the person of color, you know, the job because your company lacks diverse, you know, lacks diversity as opposed to quotas, which is like, Hey, you've got to find 10 black people to shove into a, or 10 gay people to shove into a slot at your company. And then you just run out and find anybody. Like there's a big difference. We kind of blur that line. A thousand percent we do. And the thing I've never understood honestly about this representation concept is that there's a lot of black people out there, a lot of gay people out there. There's a lot of Mexican people out there and Hispanics. It's like, why mm-hmm. wouldn't you want to put them in the movie so more people could go to the movie who would go, oh, that's me. I get it. And also, it's about good storytelling and it's about entertaining people. And, you know, I use Black Panther as an example because people, you know, you know, audiences don't care what race the person is in the movie if they can relate to it. And, you know, and you're right, it's 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 about more than a black and white issue. It's about you know, a human issue. And and you go to see movies because you want to see entertaining stories. And so Black Panther was probably the blackest movie I've seen as far as like, you know, the actors were mostly dark skin. The music 
was bl- the set design, the cost, everything was black. It was the blackest movie I've ever seen. And it ended up being like the most profitable, one of the most profitable Marvel movies. I think it's in the top five. But, you know, when I tell people that, I'm like, they're like, well, it's a Marvel movie. But I'm like, you don't understand, but it did better than most other Marvel movies. <laughs> like, you know, so, and it was all black. And it, you know why it did great was because it was a great movie and it told a great story that everybody can relate to. So, you know, we're all human beings at the end of the day and we all have the same, you know, wants and needs and fears and, you know, good storytelling taps into that. Like it taps into the things that connect us. You know, I get tired. Like, you know, I went through a huge like phase of, you know, where I was watching a lot of, you know, Korean horror films and, and because they're, I had not seen that, those stories before. And I'd not seen those stories told like that. And I found them scary because they were something different. So I don't want to see the same stuff. And I assume that most people, you know, of course there are fallback entertainment things that you, that you like seeing on film. But again, I don't think people care as much as, you know, society, you know, the loud people on Twitter <laughs> would have you believe exactly. that people care. Nah, I, I, I completely agree with you. So I want to make uh, make sure I'm uh, adhering to your time, which I appreciate already. So here's the next couple of things I'm going to fire off. These are a little less okay. heady, a little less heady, a little more fun, perhaps. Okay. Okay. Salem's Lot, go. I love Salem's Lot. I saw, the funny thing is, I um, I never, I, I didn't watch the, for, the whole movie for a long time, but I remember when it first aired, I snuck out. Um, of my mom, my mom was watching it. And I snuck out and I saw the D- Danny Glick scene. Um, where he's clicking on the window and scared the scared the shit out of me, and at the same time, like stirred something in me <laughs> at my at my young age. But just the funny story on that is, I had to. Um, I was so scared, I had to sleep in my mom's room on the floor. I had to sneak in and sleep in my mom's room, and my mom and my sister shared a bed, and so my sister knew that I was sleeping there. So she took shoes to bed and like would throw shit at me at night because she knew I couldn't say anything because my mom would have whipped me if she'd have found out I watched Sam's Lot. So I know there, there was a story there. I love that movie. Well, I, and I bring this up solely because there was another guy that I did an interview with uh, about like three weeks ago. I think, I think his name, I think it was Andrew Chapani. Maybe that was him. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Blur, but I remember you. Don't forget. <laughs> You're Steve. Right. Right? That's your name, Steve. Am I right? <laughs> my name is Steve Watson. I've already forgot. You're my brother. Um, but no, it's funny because I someone else brought that up, and, and I'm like, oh my god, it, we've all three had the exact same experience. That kid floated in the fucking window. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just terrifying. It's a terrifying scene. Just, just nightmare. Okay, next V go. Oh my god, um, V is my favorite. Like, if there is a um, Nightmare on Elm Street is like my movie love of my life, and V is like the TV show love of my life. I remember. When that came out, it, it was like such a big event movie. I fell in love with everybody, but Diana, I thought, was the coolest villainess I ever saw. Um, me and my friend used to <laughs> memorize the dialogue when they did the series, which wasn't as great as the as the movie. But um, and I was always Diana, and he was always Lydia, and we'd get in a, we would recite their lines at school. Funny story. Um, I over the years. Um, when I did my Good Samaritan short, um, I reached out to Jane Badler 
who lives in Australia to see if she'd be. And I wrote her this letter and told her how much the show impacted me, how much she did. And we've become friends now. And she, she has a little cameo in the Good Samaritan short. No um, kidding. Such a lovely lady, wonderful actress and singer. And um, yeah, that show just blew me away. And you know what's funny about the show is I didn't realize this until years later, but originally it was written, it was going to be a story about the rise of Nazism. And NBC is like, nobody wants to, you know, we have too many movies about about that. So what he basically, instead of, you know, going with Nazis, he basically did the same thing to show how kind of Nazi, the Nazi ideology um, could spread. And he just used aliens. Wow. Didn't know there'd be a theme out of that one. All I know is that yeah. I was scared shitless when they, when the guy pulled, they finally revealed that they were lizards and he pulled his like bad, whatever plastic mask off and he was a lizard. Oh yeah. And he had the lizard face. Yeah, I love that show. And, and um, yeah, Diana was awesome. The show was awesome. Um, the uh, the Mark Singer, I don't know how they, they painted his jeans on in that series. I don't know how he has tightest friggin' jeans I've ever seen on a guy in my life. But um, I'm, I wasn't complaining. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that mini series is like my yeah my favorite. That's why I love doing these interviews sometimes. I get to do research and watch a bunch of stuff. And like Kitty Genovese, I'm like, I have not heard about that in years. Why? You know, I get to do this, all this research and V, I watch a little bit of. <laughs> it's so good. We're going to keep going here because now we're going to do uh, the final question. I'm going to sew this up. And it is the following, my friend. And it's again, the same, it's the same question I ask at the end too. It's as a creative, when do you know you're done? Script, idea. Um, I know I'm done. I think for me personally, I know I, I, I'm done when I, I have, because I have a process just because I've been in development for so long and developed stuff for so long. Um, I have a very small group of people that I'll have read my stuff that I trust. And once I kind of get it from them, as far as like, I'll have a couple of re people read it before I give it to my agent. But, um, I, I'm pretty good at gauging when I'm done. I, I feel like I'm done when I have a, a satisfying story where I feel like I've, you know, got it, gotten all the scares and the themes that I want in there. And um, yeah, when I've kind of gone through and I think I, I'm like, I think I've there's not any plot holes or anything like that. Yeah. I, I, that's a pretty vague answer. I know, but it's like, no, there's no wrong answer. Obviously. Yeah. 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 That's why I ask it. Because ultimately, that question really is about losing, about letting go. Letting go, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty good at, because the best lesson I learned, and I, this was coming from working at a studio, was that the final decision on whether something gets made or not is not, has nothing to do with the quality of the script. You can have a bad script with a great actor attached, and they're going to make the bad script. You know, the business side of the business is very much people have to feel like they're putting their mark on your project. So they'll give you notes just to give notes. So you have to go through a process where you have to learn how to like listen, but then filter out the stupid notes, which you'll get a lot of. So I realize that there's so many stages after I let go of the script. Um, they're out of my control because if, if company A buys it, they may want to take the script in a different direction. If company B buys it, they may want to take it in a different direction. And I have to let go of my personal connection to it, not completely because I'll fight for what I, you know, for things that I think are important, but I realize that especially if, you know, I, I write scripts to have them made. And if, um, 
if I want to have total control over them, then, then I have to find the financing myself, you know? So I've, I've learned to like, let go pretty, pretty easy out of necessity. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the key to life, in my opinion. Congratulations on learning a Jeffy Reddick. And finally, I like to do a little shtick here. It's total shtick, so bear with me. I like to pretend that we're going to hang up, and then we're going to talk for a second after I quote-unquote hang up. It's a whole shtick. Some people do it better okay. than others. And I will say, by the way, Marianne Madalena, the woman who I described, was the Wes Craven Nightmare on Elm Street producer. She was fantastic. So the bar is extremely high for you. So you ready? Because what's going to happen is yeah. I'm going to say goodbye. You're going to say goodbye to pretend to a little bit of acting that you can do, which you are. Then we're going to quote unquote, hang up and talk for a second. Deal? Deal. I start. Here we go. Uh, Jeffrey, by the way, it's interesting saying Jeffrey to another kind of sort of Jeffrey, but I don't take the Jeffrey on. At any rate, thank you so much for doing this show. Seriously, what a fantastic time. I'm going to go back and watch V, quite frankly. And And V, uh, the final battle is, is my favorite part. It's the second part. So, yes, make sure you do that. I'm, I'm just going to get a bunch of bonbons and some vodka, just whole thing. <laughs> and now your turn. Goodbye, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on the show. That's enough. Click.